0: A reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. A reading from the prophet Micah, Micah 5-2 from the NASB. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. A reading from the prophet Malachi, Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. Luke 1, through 79, again from the NASB. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. These are the words of our Lord.
1: We're doing a series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity And there should be, they're supposed to be putting up on the board while I'm talking, there should be 15... uh, Okay, so finally, okay. So the third one, the church, is what we started last week. There's uh, 15 emphases, and that's supposed to be changing every 30 or 40 seconds, so you can review what all 15 of them are. And we're trying to do like a rethink... Uh, What I think that we're really at, I think that this statement is correct, I've thought a lot about this statement over the last 20 or so years, Um, I would say that with the birth of evangelical Christianity, which really kind of came out of uh, uh, shortly after the American Civil War... uh, The the modernist movement started, which the modernist movement was a couple of theological tendencies or trends. One came out of German theology and spread to Britain and America and so forth, called higher criticism. And higher criticism was based on an anti-supernatural worldview. In other words, there is no miraculous and so forth. And it was very skeptical about what not only scripture taught but about what the church had taught for centuries about Scripture. So, for instance, uh, they started questioning whether Moses really wrote the first five books of the Bible. And uh, uh, there began to be various theories of that uh, uh, and who wrote it and when and so forth. And they doubted, for instance, that Daniel uh, wrote the book of Daniel. And the thinking went something like this. Uh, Daniel very clearly predicts the coming that Daniel's written about uh, 586 or so, 600 B.C. or so, uh, and, uh, or probably like 550 B.C. And Daniel clearly predicts uh, not only the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom, which had already happened, and the Babylonian captivity, which happened during the lifetime of Daniel. But it also predicts the coming of the Greeks and Alexander the Great, which happened uh, about 200 years, uh, 250 years after Daniel, and the coming of the Romans, which happened uh, about 400 years after Daniel. And so because of an anti-supernatural commitment, a leap of faith, that had no basis in reason, logic, or anything else, but they a priori made a dogmatic uh, belief that nothing spiritual, supernatural, or uh, exists. There aren't miracles. There isn't a God who can tell the future, he, that knows the end from the beginning. And because they were committed to that natural worldview, they said... Daniel must have been written much later than we thought by people that were writing after the events because how could they predict the future correctly? But you see, that's an assumption that's not necessarily rooted in any facts or any evidence. And uh, so what doubt and unbelief has a tendency to do is that it makes a leap of faith that... uh, that, this, that, that there is no such thing as an eternal spiritual person, God, who knows the end from the beginning and who lives outside and above time. And so there, the Bible can't accurately write anything about the future before it happens. And that was part of a movement that, that began to sweep, sweep what began to form what we now call the liberal Protestant churches, like your Episcopalians or the uh, various now... A lot of liberal churches have various branches. So for instance, the, our friends in the Reformed Episcopalian Church actually brought, brought, broke off from the more liberal Presbyterians, way back in, or more liberal Episcopalians, way back in the 1860s and '70s, because they saw that once you give up the authority of God's word, you're just going to go adrift with wherever the culture's going. And you'll believe anything that the, the majority of people want to believe, right? So that, that started a, a thing that was called the fundamentalist-modernist controversy, and evangelicalism grew up out of the conservative response to the modernists. And the modernists, were, therefore, you know, had ideas like Christ didn't really rise from the dead, Christ really didn't do miracles, uh, Paul didn't really write 13 books of the New Testament. Uh, Paul probably wrote five or six, and other people, uh, you know, using Paul's name, wrote them because uh, Paul wouldn't have been smart enough to have stylistic differences from one epistle to another, <laughs> and you know, and, and all all kind of crazy ideas like that became what we now have as liberal Christianity, right? And. Um, Uh, this, this, you know, this has had very big impact on, on our culture in, in, in various ways. And uh, so the evangelical mindset grew up, and in, in, in roughly speaking, uh, the modernists somewhat took the ways of interpreting God and Scripture that the Sadducees took in the, in the time of Christ, And the the conservative, uh, more fundamentalists, tended to move toward the way the Pharisees thought about Scripture. Neither of them liked Jesus very much. And so what we're kind of postulating is that there's a lot of things. We we now live in a time where probably the most lip service is given to following the Bible... Of any time in church history, and it's very similar to the time of Christ, where he quotes from Isaiah, saying, "These people worship me in vain, and because they teach us their doctrines, the ideas of man, and so forth." So, uh, we're we're living in a time where uh, it's very necessary to do a rethink. Uh, again, we give the most lip service to thinking our ideas are biblical when, in fact, we do the least serious following of them of probably any time period in church history. All right, so that, what this series is all about is it's called rediscovering, and what we mean by that is do a restudy, a rethink, re-examination, uh, dig deep, uh, question our principles of interpretation, uh, Etc. so that uh, because the word of God was always meant to become incarnate. Unless we do the word, unless we live the word, if we just theorize about the word, it becomes a great deception in our minds and hearts. And that, so that's always the challenge that we face as Christians, uh, not just what do we unearth as we d- dig deeper into God, but uh, as we d- dig into the scriptures and so forth, what are we putting into a practical lifestyle as a community of people? Uh, hopefully, that makes sense. So this series is about re-examining uh, the 15 things. I think that's uh, the second group of five or so. Out, of, it, you know, it'll change the uh, the five that are listed there. Every I don't know if they have a change in every 30 seconds or whatever. But, um, so we looked at what it means to love God, uh, was the first thing we looked at. The second thing on the list was, um, was, the, was grace, what is, and we especially compared grace-based thinking to performance-based thinking, because one of the major tendencies from Genesis on, of all fallen men, Uh, is to uh, take in a performance-based approach to God uh, instead of a grace-based approach to God. And we cannot uh, do anything but bring forth death and destruction by a performance-based approach. Being performance-based will lead you to be self-righteous and self-condemned at the same time. Did you hear that? That's, in fact, what you should discern in your heart. If you're hard on other people, that's a pretty good sign that you're performance-based. If, if you uh, fluctuate between thinking of yourself as pretty spiritual and pretty good Christian and wonderful and uh, really beating yourself up about what a lousy Christian you are, then, you're, then that's a good sign that you're not walking in grace. And that's a, that should be uh, something that we regularly think about all the time. When I first began thinking about that sort of thing, I was two or three years old in Christ, and I was crying out to God, Lord, I become a Pharisee. Help me get set free from being religious. When you get serious about the Lord, the first thing that everyone does, they think they don't, but you become a Pharisee. And so you're too harsh on, on uh, sinners at times and you're too, you give yourself too much of a pass uh, but you have too hard to fe- uh, thoughts about others and then you fluctuate between that and being, uh, uh, being self-condemned all the time because we know deep down we, we don't really measure up uh, to our own standards let alone God's. So grace is so, so important to set us free from all that. Uh, last week, we started on this, the third emphasis in this series is the church. And I'm just really doing a uh, very shallow, uh, cursory uh, introduction to each of these subjects. What I'm trying to always do is I'm trying to give you, if you take notes if you, if you take the messages seriously or you're actually taking notes, I'm always amazed at how many people I see that don't take notes. Uh, I, you know, the first thing I did when I became a Christian was get a notebook and start taking notes on all the messages, when, and no one told me to do that. It was just, I mean, that's a necessity if you're going to take things seriously. And if you uh, occasionally spend some time reviewing these, the notes and so forth, um you know you'll you'll make some steady progress and one of the areas you need to make steady progress is learning to be grace oriented in your thinking and god will help us with that and you really need to cry out to god to help us with that because deep in our fallen nature is the is the tendency to be performance based and that's a that's part of the journey in the christian life is to come Progressively out of being performance-based and progressively into being grace-based. If you have, if you struggle with being hard on yourself or whatever, the answer is to have God help you with grace. Now, um, Nathan talked this morning about word pictures. And, uh, I almost kind of went, whew, because I really debated at three and four in the morning whether to, uh, do one more week on the word pictures of the church. And, uh, the truth of the matter is there's about five other things I want to talk about about the church. And I, I, frankly had a pretty tough week cause I had the flu all week and, uh, didn't feel well any days this week, but I still maintained some appointments and all. But, uh, Frankly, I just didn't get, I got some reading done, some studying done, but I just didn't really put enough time into doing the other three or four subjects I'm working on, uh, on, on with regard to the church. Uh, hopefully by next week I'll be ready to do the most exciting thing, one, which is going to be um, kind of an introduction to how to rethink the whole New Testament for, for us. Uh, So, anyway, Nathan brought out today very clearly something that we talk a lot about in this church, and that is that God speaks in word pictures or imagery. And as Nathan brought out out pretty clearly, most of the time the imagery is intentionally uh, revisited from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 all the way to the last couple chapters of Revelation. So there's subjects like uh, the garden, which we first see in in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Well, two also, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's a garden. But the garden gets tied in throughout the rest of the Bible to a theme of a garden versus a wilderness and a garden that becomes a city. And God's intention is to bring a city uh, to earth that's made up of his people, filled with his spirit, living his ways, and manifesting a a culture that derives out of his person and being and his values and priorities. And that's called the church. So last week, we kind of got into a little bit uh, some... uh, word pictures of the church uh this week i'm going to try to give us <laughs> we we got to tighten up the first part of the this meeting a little bit cuz i'm getting up here uh about 20 minutes after i need to be and i don't i don't want to go over but it's not actually my fault that i'm going over cuz i'm uh i'm getting up here about 20 25 minutes later than i should Uh, So we got to do the announcements and all those kind of things a little quicker. But anyway, we'll work on that. Um, So today I just want to look at 13 word pictures of the church from the book of Ephesus. Oh, not I misstated that. From Ephesus, the city, the church in the city. And so when I first did this uh, some years ago... I started with like seven word pictures of the church from the book of Ephesians. Uh, Eventually, I changed it to eight, and eventually it started to grow from there as I noticed more word pictures of the church in Ephesus that I hadn't really focused enough on. But Ephesus, we actually have knowledge of Ephesus from three places in the New Testament, so I'm going to draw on all three of those to talk about word pictures that come to us from Ephesus. Uh, one or so of which is not necessarily spoken about in the book of Ephesians. So, in Revelation chapter two and three, Jesus speaks to seven churches using imagery that he had introduced, that John had introduced us to in Revelation chapter one. And ironically, Nathan spoke about Revelation chapter one and images of Christ from that this morning, which we didn't compare notes or anything, but. Uh, so the first, when in, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to seven different churches in uh, what at that time was called Asia, uh, later became called Asia Minor. Today it's called Turkey, and we call uh, something more, much farther to the east, Asia today. But um, the, the, where, where Turkey and Syria are today is where uh, Asia was in, in the time of the writing of the New Testament. And Jesus speaks to seven different churches. The first one he speaks to is the church at Ephesus. And he t- tells the Ephesian things, certain things in Revelation 2 1 through 7, which I would encourage you to review this week. Then, of course, we have knowledge of the Ephesian church from the six chapters of the book of Ephesians or Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And then there are several references to Asia or to, to Ephesus in Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20. I'm not going to take time to read all that, but that's, those are references are listed in your outline under Roman numeral 2, right where it says 13. I wanted to call this a baker's dozen word pictures of the church, but it didn't really roll off the tongue that well. So... Um, But 13 is, of course, often referred to as a baker's dozen. Uh, So here's some word pictures. First of all, a people for God or God's special treasure. That's a major theme of Scripture, as you can see in Deuteronomy. uh, Chapter 7, verse 6 through 8. And you should also note, I don't know why I don't have it there. Note Exodus chapter 19, 1 through 6. In First Peter chapter two verses five and nine, but all of those refer to um, to the to the to God's purpose, which He declared from all eternity. And His purpose was to have a people for His own possession, a people that's His special treasure that reflect his glory to the whole earth. So when he tells us, uh, he doesn't give us in Matthew 6 a prayer that he intends us to repeat by rote, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm not necessarily uh, against praying that by memory. Uh, Some Christians are because Jesus says don't use vain repetition. But actually what Jesus is referring to was a practice that's still very prevalent in, say, the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church today, uh, where you repeat like a, a phrase over and over. And if you say Jesus, Mary, and Joseph uh, a thousand times, you know, you'll get a certain kind of blessing. And he's not uh, necessarily saying you shouldn't pray a prayer that's pre written, but he is saying you shouldn't have like a formula that you can kind of score points if you, uh, uh, in, in the Catholic Church, uh, uh, of course people laugh at this because of the, the modern use of this word, but that type of prayer is actually called ejaculations, and you, uh, you say like Jesus, Mary, and Joseph enough times or, or some formula like that, and, and it's supposed to bring about a certain blessing, uh, and it's kind of frankly borders on, on the idea of witchcraft that if you Jump through a certain enough hoops, you're going to get the, your desired result. That's something that is also part of our fallen nature, where we, when we're performance based, we think if if I if I do these seven things, then I get this this reward or whatever. Uh, most people who struggle with addiction struggle with that type of thinking, and it's actually a type of witchcraft or magic. And uh, is it is. If you could ask somebody to get me a bo- a glass of water, I'm supposed to have a glass of water up here. And it's very hot for me. Um, so Ephesians one three um, three uh, through fifteen, you can look at i'm not i'm I'm so short on time that I'm not going to be able to read all the scripture passages. The second uh, uh, word picture that I want to point out is is the church. We talked about that one last week. And in, uh, in Greek, it's the word ecclesia. Jesus uses that word twice in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. But it's used throughout the epistles quite a bit. And in the, what's called the Septuagint, which was a Greek uh, version of the Hebrew scriptures uh, made... Uh, Oh, about 400 B.C., 250 B.C., somewhere in that range. I forget the exact date and when the Septuagint was made. Um, The word for congregation or assembly, when you read that in the Old Testament, is the Greek word ecclesia. Of course, the Old Testament scriptures were originally written in Hebrew. But an ironic thing, if you're not familiar with this, is that when Jesus uh, and the apostles used the Old Testament, Uh, Throughout all of the New Testament, they quote equally from the Hebrew Masoretic Scriptures and from the Greek Septuagint as if both of them are the divinely inspired, inerrant, uh, perfect Word of God. So Jesus and the apostles acknowledge the uh, authority of the Septuagint as well as the Hebrew Masoretic Scriptures. So when Jesus says, I'll build my church, uh, he's using that word ecclesia. So Ephesians 1.22, for instance, talks about, uh, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, Nathan, uh, and gave him his head over all things to the church. So that word, by the way, just so you—that's a word you should give a little bit more thought to, even though I'm way behind schedule. That word goes uh, was first used during uh, the age of Promethe- or, um, Pericles in fifth uh, century Athens. It's uh, at about the time that Aristotle and, and uh, Plato lived, um, and it it uh was used in the greek city states which the word is police, uh, polis uh p o l i s uh that's the name of a greek city state and various greek city states had various types of government but uh you know greece is often looked at as the birthplace of democracy which isn't actually quite true uh, It's just a modern way uh liberal way of thinking re- Rewriting history, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, like in in Athens, uh, all free men, not women, uh, could vote, right? And so, um, the assembly was called the Ecclesia. The people who were they, it, you couldn't be a slave, and you couldn't be a debtor, and you and you had to own property. Uh, but, if, uh, but if you were a freeholder, that is, a free person with, with uh income, job, and so forth, you were part of the body politic, and you could vote. And that was called the ecclesia. So that's a word, like many words, which um, the writers of Scripture take out of another culture and kind of sanctify it and uh, redefine it and reuse it for biblical purposes, which happens to a lot of words. And um, so so it, it really means those who are kind of set apart and called out. So God uses it for us because we are, if we are the people of God, we're actually called out of this world into Christ's kingdom, and we become a very different entity. We're citizens of a new kingdom. We're a new family, as we're going to see in in all these word pictures and so forth. And so uh, church is a way of referring to, uh, church actually has nothing to do, like we'll say, uh, I even, you know, catch myself saying this all the time. Oh, I'll meet you over at the church. But I try as often as possible to say, I'll meet you over at the building. Uh, you know, because this is a building that we facilitate. But the church, uh, you know, the Haggers had, in the Gray's had Thanksgiving dinners. So the church met at their house on Thanksgiving. You know, the church is wherever God's people are meeting in the name of Christ. Uh, the third, and now, the third word that we want to look at is actually the first one that occurs in Ephesians. It actually occurs in verse two, or is it? Uh, hold on, let me look. No, verse one. The saints, Hagias uh, is the Greek word for holy, and the, the the church the church is referred to as the holy ones. Now, some of us think of ourselves and we go, "Gee, I'm not very holy." <laughs> I've had that thought. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to holiness, I'm maybe pathetic. Um, but actually, that really describes who we are. We are called to be set apart to God, and holy means set apart to God for a special use. And it's differentiated like some things, uh, like when we talk about money or value you can't really talk about the concept of value without talking about it in relation to something else. You know, I value my wife, which means I think of her in a different way than I think of any other woman in the world. And I have a very special commitment and boundaries and and prioritizing and so forth of that relationship in a way I would never think of to do with anyone else. So the word saint is actually like a value word, and it actually means uh, to be God's special treasure that's, that in his eyes is super, super valuable. Now, one of the things that I deal with a lot when I'm dealing with young Christians or people that are struggling, we have quite a few folks in our church that, that have this, really all of us have this to one degree or another, But we devalue ourselves in our thinking. And so, you know, um, but when you do that, you're actually rebelling against the word of God. You're actually speaking out of your mouth lies. And it's just as wicked as murder. In fact, it is a type of murder because we're actually, when we devalue ourselves or someone else, uh, now to say that a non-believer is not a Christian, that's not incorrect, but as Christians, we have a new relationship with God that makes us holy, even when we're not living very holy. Because we're holy in relationship to who he is. And he is perfectly holy. And so you may not be a very mature Christian, and you might think, well, John Gray is so much more mature than I am in Christ, or something. I think that sometimes. But, uh, but I would be wrong. Because you are the righteousness of god in christ jesus that's who you are that's actually something i tend to say around the house all the time when I, my wife and i have different ways of joking and bantering and i always say remember i'm the righteousness of god in christ jesus <laughs> she says you sure don't act like it sometimes but uh, and that's precisely the point you are the righteousness of god in christ jesus even while God has taken you on a journey to live there. You are, you are the saints. You're the holy ones. You're set apart for a very special purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I have some things that are more special than other things. You know, I have a piano that's not worth very much money to the way this world thinks, But it was the piano my mother played, and it was the piano I learned on. And, uh, uh, you know, it was the piano I was sitting at when I prayed for my little brother the day before he died. And it has all sorts of memories. It was the piano my kids played when they were learning to play the piano. And so even though it's not necessarily uh, valuable and wouldn't be to anyone else, To me, it's very valuable. And you you might have things like that in your life. And that's exactly actually what Paul is talking about when he calls us saints. God thinks of you as a very, very special person. Because you're the called out, out ones, the church. You're the people of God, his special treasure. And you're set apart as holy to him. And again, holiness means set apart. So under point three there, you can see uh, the word holy is used a number of times, and the word saints or holy ones is used a number of times. And you could spend some time reading those and thinking about them. I don't have enough time for that, uh, or this would become a series. Just, just this particular teaching. A fourth and now word picture of the church that's used in Ephesians, and uh, over to the right and underlined, I have some of the scriptures where it's used in Ephesians, is the body of Christ. Now, a body is an important concept because a body is necessary to do what your head and your spirit are thinking. right? So uh, I have an, and you have an inner being, and your outer life comes out of that inner being. The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. God always acts in a way that's congruent with who he is. When we do uh, the four teachings that we take one person after another through, mostly Deanna and I do this, but Daniel's done it. Lots of you have done it with new people. We take them through the four uh, studies on being baptized in the Holy Spirit. uh, The first things we look at is a progression, the person of God, the Holy Spirit, the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and then the activities of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, when we talk about the person of God, we're talking about who he is, what's his characteristics, what's his natures, because everyone always acts congruently with who we are. People always want to say, well, I said that, but that's not who I really am, (laughs) You know, there was an incident in the NFL recently where a player went kind of nuts and beat up another player. And and he said, well, that's not who I am. (laughs) I think it was who you were. (laughs) But uh, so I actually always use my good friend Anvesh as an illustration when I'm I'm taking someone through this because I always say this. Like, if somebody came and told me, Anvesh beat me up the other day. Like, he slapped me around, punched me, and so forth, we would all just go, no, we didn't, right, right, we wouldn't need any other evidence, we would just need, to. you're talking about the same Onvesh, or do you know a different guy named Onvesh, if it's the same guy that we all know is Onvesh, then he didn't beat you up the other day, unless you're doing a riddle, and he got up at six, and you got up at seven, or something like that, <laughs> he beat me up, uh, he got up before I did. I, I've heard that he's beat up Deanna many times. but uh, <laughs> I've never been there to verify that, but I'm sure it's probably true. Um, so uh, that's kind of an important thing, is people act out of who they are. And your outward actions are a result of who you inwardly is. Or you be. <laughs> you be the you be. Uh, your, your mouth does speak out of the abundance that fills the heart. You eat what you like. You sleep in extra if you want to be lazy or, you're, or you need to sleep in extra or Whatever. But your your outward life is always an accurate reflection of what your inward life is. And people who are always trying to say, well, I didn't really mean to be this way, you're you're just lying to yourself. So the body of Christ is kind of an important thing, because what we're called to do is we're called to be the outward manifestation of what Jesus is doing. You know, like if someone calls you on the phone, hey, Daniel, what's up? You know, Daniel should be able to say, did you not know I had to be about my father's business? (laughs) That's what I'm doing. Like, I'm doing the will of the Father. I'm doing what God's doing. Uh, The fifth one, because i got to move along, is the commonwealth of Israel. That is, we're heirs of the covenant of promise. We're strangers and aliens to this world. Some of us have way too many friendships with this world. Um, I was actually speaking to a person uh, the other day who was a little bit uh, perturbed because people that he knew before he was a Christian that he still knows and hangs out with and so forth weren't treating him like the Christians do. They were still remembering his old sins and And, you know, had low expectations and so forth. And I said, why would you expect people who are are not, you know, there's lots of, everyone's a Christian in our culture. But the truth of the matter is, there's real Christians and there's not. And uh, don't expect, like, people get into a thing where they get upset because unbelievers act like unbelievers. My boss was mean, Duh. (laughs) You know, what would you, it's amazing how many people have expectations that, you know, uh, the government or your neighbor or your boss or an officer in the, the, if you're in the Air Force, they're going to treat you in a godly way. Why would you expect that? The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. You should expect unbelievers to treat you terrible. Praise God. And we are called to not return insult for insult, but to give a blessing instead. Right? So we are strangers and aliens in this world. We don't fit in. It's amazing how many Christians have emotional problems with the fact that people outside of of a deep relationship with God don't treat you uh, very well. But I don't think you should expect anything less. And we are fellow citizens with the saints, and so we have all the rights and privileges of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. One of the characteristics of this world is people want rights and privileges, they don't want responsibilities, it's an age of entitlement. And we as Christians should be all about responsibilities, not our rights, the world is always asserting its rights. And you know what growing up is about? Growing up is about having more and more responsibilities for more and more people. Uh, thir- seventhly, that was, or wait that was uh, comment, uh, sit, that flows into citizens of God's kingdom. You know, it's amazing how many so-called Christians don't member themselves in a local church. But that's an absurdity. You can't walk with God without a deep commitment to a, a, an actual bo- a tangible body. I can't be married in a theoretical way to some sort of theoretical person out there. You know, like if you're married to everyone, you're married to no one. (laughs) You know, there there has to be tangible boundaries and commitments and definitions and relationships. And if we're citizens of God's kingdom, then we actually have obligations in God's kingdom, and we have membership, and we have commitments. And our lives are not our own to do what we want to do. And, you know, uh, when it comes to membership and so forth, it's amazing how many uh, people, how many Christians I know. In fact, I know very few Christians who actually go about thinking about, like, who you should be membered to in the body of Christ in a very biblical way. I'm not concerned if they the people have wealth. I'm not concerned if they have uh, the right name. You know, like the First Baptist, Pentecostal, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Lutherans of Christ, or something. You know, whatever. I like what I'm concerned about is what are they doing in terms of honoring God? That there's three ministries of all Christians. To, to minister to God, to minister to each other. So I first want to know about how much they have depth of seeking God. Are there a lot of people in their midst to say, well, I don't read much? You can't love God and not read much. Because you're to love God with all your heart, your, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And when Jesus quoted that from the Old Testament... He always added the phrase, and your mind," mine, which was not in the Hebrew. But Jesus is actually, many times when he's saying things, he's already anticipating because of what he did in Luke 4, his first speeches in Capernaum and uh, Nazareth. He made it clear that the kingdom was going to be for all people, the Gentiles and so forth. And he, in his entire ministry, he spoke accordingly, So he adds the concept mind because he's preparing the gospel to invade a Greek world. And uh, it's not just about your emotions and and your worshiping God. It's about your thinking the things of God, which involves studying of his word in a serious way. And you can't say you love God if you don't love God with your mind. If you're not taking your studies seriously, you're, mis- you're, you're misdirected as a Christian. That doesn't mean you're not necessarily a Christian. It doesn't mean I hate you or God hates you. It means that you're misdirected. And you should, the word repent means to change your mind and go a different direction. And if you don't take studying scripture very seriously, that's a problem. Because you're called to love God with all your mind. And your mind is a terrible thing to waste. Somebody said that. So, citizens of God's kingdom is a big deal. I have obligations towards you, not because I'm pastor... Because I'm a citizen. It's amazing to me how many uh, Christians don't put enough value on the Lord's Day, uh, on praying for one another, on serving one another, on tithing. Uh, We are to live in commitment to each other. Three things, three ministries of all Christians, I started to say, our ministry to God, our ministry to each other, and our ministry to those outside of the church, the lost. Now, when it comes to the church, because we're living in a time when the church is very fractured, there's some commitment levels. First of all, we're we're to be committed to the people that we're in, in covenant with in our local church. But as far as you can, you should love and serve all Christians. Seventhly, we're God's building, God's tabernacle. And again, there's a bunch of scriptures there to go with that. Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation, the apostles and prophets land. Ephesians talks about how Christ is fitting the whole body together. Who are you fitted together with? Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Who are you clashing with? We have a tendency to think about, like, if we're clashing, we kind of, well, I sit over here because I kind of clash with this guy that sits over here. But the truth of the matter is, you should be even more involved with the people you clash with. God put them in your life for a good purpose. I, love, I, I especially like the people that are going to challenge me. I'll never forget. It's, it was a lifelong memory when of sitting in Leah Gray's living room as we were talking about her calling to help with the uh, Kids Rock and all that and, and, and uh, you know, what God was doing uh, between us. And I said, Leah, you and I are going to fight a lot. And I'm so looking forward to this. And that's proven to be quite true. We're both type A. And uh, we have a lot of similarities. And you always fight with people that you're similar to. You get along with people that you're opposite of. And uh, Leah's one of my favorite people to banter with about anything. (laughs) I call her up just because I'm in a feisty mood and I want to argue about something. (laughs) No, I'm just like, Leah, what do you want to argue about today? No, I'm just kidding. And, you know, like, we're so misinformed about that whole concept, by the way, iron sharpening, iron and stuff. You know, sometimes it is lawyer loyalty to fight. Like, we, we tend to avoid people that are problematic to us and so forth. And uh, sometimes they're of great benefit to us. You you know you got there, A concept the Puritan had Puritans had was to lovingly go after and hug your crosses. Don't don't just kind of put up with your crosses. Go get them and tackle them and hug them. Uh, eighthly, we're God's household. Now, in economics, the basic unit is the household. And um, God actually thinks in terms of households. And again, in the language in Ephesians 2, verses 18 and 19, we're members of God's household. When Jesus says in John 14, remember the context. He's talking, people make this about heaven, which is nuts. Everyone thinks when he goes, I go to prepare a place for you, that he's preparing a place for you in heaven. That's so stupid I can hardly stand it. I should be nicer. (laughs) Let me tell you how I really feel. Idioso. No. uh, (laughs) um, The whole, Jesus doesn't speak like change subjects in the middle of his talk. He speaks in context of what he's talking about. And in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, for four chapters, is Jesus' discourse at the Last Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels, don't have time to say what that means. Most of you know that by now. They they cover that Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper, the communion that we're about to celebrate, that he predicted that uh, Simon Peter would, betray, would renounce him and, and betray him and, 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 and then repent and be restored, and that Judas would betray him and not be restored. Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover that. John doesn't cover that at all because John had already read the three other Gospels, and he's bringing out things about Christ and about the fact in his eternal deity in his sonship, in, in his the, being the eternally begotten son of the Father, the word that became flesh. And so what John focuses on is that Jesus is about to go with the Father, and he's giving them some last instructions, which he does in several places, the Passover supper in John 13, 14, 15, 16, when he encounters the disciples in the upper room in John 20 and 21 and, and Luke 24, And then when he talks to the disciples just before the ascension in the last nine verses of Luke and the first nine verses of of Acts, Jesus' last time's talking with the disciples, he's here on a mission to change the universe. And he's not going to talk about unimportant things. Those are some of the most important portions of Scripture. Because it's kind of like John, you know, Bradbury, I've been your pastor for seven or eight years, and I'm dying of cancer on Thursday, and this is the last time I get to talk to you. Uh, I'm not dying of cancer on Thursday. I'm just giving a hypothetical. Uh, This is the last time I get to talk to you. I'm not going to make small talk. I'm going to say, remember that we studied this, and that I asked you to do this, and that you're called to be this, and you better love that Lourdes, and you better... Uh, you know, whatever, be a great church member, and all, you know, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Don't forget your studies. So Jesus is saying the most important things, and he's especially telling the disciples how it's going to be in their ministry after he goes to the Father, because he's going to give them the Holy Spirit to continue to do his mission. And so all of John 13, 14, and 15, and 16 are about what the disciples are called to do on the earth. It has nothing to do with heaven. It's about the fact that Jesus is going to heaven, and they're going to continue his mission on the earth. So when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's saying, I go to prepare what you're supposed to do to fit into the body of Christ, to the household of God to membership in God's family. I'm, go- I'm going to the Father, and you're going to get special jobs to do as a result. It's like those sad songs about, you know, the dad's going to die in patches. I'm depending on you, son, to pull this family through. He's trying to tell the kid, this is what... I'm going to die early, and you you still got your mom and, your- and the other kids, and I'm counting on you, Patches. to... To do the job and feed them and you know jesus is saying i'm giving you a lot of responsibility and i'm going to give you this helper called the holy spirit and and i'm going to prepare a place so you can do all that that's what john 14 means it has nothing to do with heaven it's the opposite of heaven We've so perverted scripture by taking it out of its context and not taking it seriously. It's unbelievable sometimes. I get a little upset. Next, we're called the Bride of Christ. Uh, Hosea is a good book about that, but there's all the, again, there's a bunch of underlying references in Ephesians about how we, the church, are called to be the Bride of Christ. Now, by the way, Paul mixes metaphors all the time, sometimes three or four metaphors in the same sentence. And he does that a lot in Ephesians. Number 10, we're the family of God. Again, that's quite overlapped with being the bride of Christ and and a household and so forth. Um, If you haven't read the book, When the Church is a Family... That's one of our top recommended books that we started recommending uh, about 15 years ago. And uh, it's a very introductory book to what the church is supposed to be. We, what he kind of identifies is that uh, modern Christianity has become radically individualistic. And everybody has their own little God and their own little relationship to God and their own little God in their own head. And they're not accountable to anybody else for, making, for the decisions they make and so forth. And that's not biblical thinking at all. There's a, a, a great tension in all truths. And holding that tension is the key to, to, to tr- truth. Deception is when you get way out on one end or another. Radical individualism, as we practice it in American Christianity, is deep deception. But neither would it be right to go to some kind of community where you you know uh, you don't make any decisions, you just do whatever you're told, <laughs> and you, like uh, some of the cults of the '70s, they would have these group weddings like thousand people get married at once or whatever, and uh, you just get assigned to who you're getting married to and, and all this kind of stuff uh, that was the Moonies, if you didn't know who they were. It's Reverend Sun Young Moon. Uh, a wonderful cult. Um, <laughs> like a mass wedding for people that just don't need, just met each other at the wedding. Uh, but the, the truth of the matter is this Christian life is not a radically individualistic thing. Uh, It has to be done in the context of spiritual family. And what the church is really supposed to be is a family of families. That's really what the church is, a family of families. And we live a a lifestyle together of glorifying God. Eleventh is the the idea of a lampstand. Nathan did some with this today. Remember, Nathan was talking about the fire Coming to Earth, we're about to light some fire, and a lampstand is a place where you put a group of individual candles so they shine brighter together. And the lampstand contains the fire, and so the people of God. I grew up in a in a Christian tradition that was uh, very ancient and very lit, uh, high church liturgical and so forth, but almost no one knew God in any tangible way. Nor did anyone know that much about why we did the, this or that th- in the liturgy, and that's why we, you know, we do church, liturgy in a low church way, uh, because they're you know, starting in the 1830s to 1870s as part of the fundamentalist modernist thing, um, a lot of evangelical Christians became uh, a priori anti-liturgy. And so, um, you know, like helping them kind of begin to understand the importance of symbolism and, and imagery and, what, and, and things that liturgy is all about is a little bit of a journey for, for a lot of people. And by God's grace, we seem to have a ministry of helping people start to make that journey. And uh, liturgy can be a great thing, and it's, uh, it's all through the Scriptures. And the things we do, like communion and reciting creeds and all those things are directly traceable to the practice of the New Testament. Churches. So... Lampstands stands are a place, you know, in Revelation 1 that Nathan referred to, Jesus says that he dwells in the middle of the lampstands. God lives in his people. And just as much as you can come to know God by reading Scripture and by uh, knowing the presence and power and voice of the Holy Spirit, so you have to come to know God by finding the Christ in your sister or brother. There's a there's a deposit of Christ in your wife, and you know that's uh, in your single brother's household or or your single sister's household, or uh, there's a deposit of Christ in other church members that you need to get. And it's just as important. It's not you know like I'm not talking about that we need to fellowship that so we always need to do social fun things, but we have to have effective, deep, personal Real relationships that bring Christ to us in ways that we would miss without that person. I need to know uh, the things of Christ that that uh, God has put in Austin or Sam or Roseanne or Ann Moya or Sindhu or John Gray. There's things that uh, that are in that Christ is about that I won't get unless I get it from Anvesh. Just as much as I won't get all of what Christ is about if I just read parts of Scripture and don't read the whole thing. So, you know, like I'm not going to just try to get the Christ out of the people who are easiest to relate to in the church. That's why no one sits with me during the fellowship dinners. (laughs) So let's stay away from that guy. You know, actually, if you want to grow in Christ, find deep, committed Christians that are hard to get along with (laughs) and get to know them. He dwells in the lampstands. A lampstand is a place where you put a lot of candles. Uh, Army of God, Uh, that's such such an important one. Uh, Man, I'm so fast time. I wish I could talk about what a triumph is. Should I talk about what a triumph is? You guys all know what a triumph is? Like in Colossians when it says, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Do you all know what that term refers to? You don't? Okay, so in, in the. Going way back to the Egyptian armies, uh, even longer back to the Mesopotamian armies and so forth, a triumph is something that you did. The, the Romans were huge on triumphs. Titus had a triumph at, in Rome after, and they built the. the uh, where's uh, Amber? Did you see the, the triumph of uh, Titus or the Arch of Titus? That, w- that was built because Titus as the son of the emperor conquered the israel and jerusalem in particular who had risen up in rebellion against the romans in 67 ad and he destroyed jerusalem and tore down the temple so not not one stone was left upon another evangelicals think that has to do with the end times but it has to do with a specific event that happened in 70 ad that jesus is predicting when he's done with Israel as his covenant people, and he's made the church the covenant people of God. And he's bringing his final judgment. Uh, judgment is progressive till eventually it's final and total. And he's saying, like he says in Matthew, Behold, your temple is left to you desolate. And then, so after a triumph, the army would, you see, if you ever saw the movie The Ten Commandments, there's a scene where uh, uh, Charlton Heston, who's playing Moses, uh, brings in all these uh, Ethiopians and people from uh, a mission he was sent on to conquer uh, a kingdom south of Egypt. And so he's bringing their leaders and their rulers in a parade before the emperor. So in Rome, after they would conquer a people, They would actually lead away a certain number of people in chains like they did with the Assyrians did in the Old Testament to the Northern Kingdom and then the Babylonians did to the Southern Kingdom because that's part of a triumph. You take the captive people and representatives of all their wealth. So like if they have um, ivory or gold or whatever, you take samples of all their wealth and you parade through the downtown cities. We had a triumph in New York City at the end of, uh, after VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, where there was a huge parade and millions of people were in all the buildings throwing confetti down and streamers and and, and shouting. And the, the armies marched down the streets saying, we have won over Germany. Right? So... Uh, in Rome, they would actually have a triumph where the, the general would be in a um, chariot, and he would have another person in the chariot behind him. And Christ didn't have that and didn't need it, and I'll tell you why in a second. But as they would parade the captive soldiers in chains and so forth, and the people would were, uh, were be throwing things out of the buildings and you know, like gifts to them and wreaths and, you know, and all kinds of things to celebrate and, it, and people would be cheering and it would be a great party, so to speak. But it, they would have like samples of the enemy's wealth and everything like that. But in the chariot, a man would stand behind the general and he would whisper to him over and over again, remember you're a man and you're not a god. Remember, you're a man, and you're not of God. But Christ led the enemies in triumph, and he he is God. And he is worthy of receiving all our accolades and all our worship. And worship in, in the Christian context is way beyond something that it is even in the Psalms and so forth, because it's a triumph every Sunday morning. We're celebrating that he is risen indeed, and he's not only risen, but he's ascended. And when he was ascended, he took part in a coronation service where God poured the oil of the Holy Spirit on his head to anoint him as King of kings and Lord of lords, and that oil poured down his head and down his beard, like the Psalms say, even down upon Aaron's robe. And as Nathan brought out today in his teaching, he talked about this, the oil poured down his feet into the earth below to say wherever this oil flows is the place where your feet are tread and I've given you dominion over them. And so this, the oil of, of, God, of Christ's coronation started to pour and it became the day of Pentecost. And it's still pouring today. And it's spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to all the uttermost parts of the earth. Today in communist China, they estimate around 30,000 people a day become Christians. Where it's illegal to be a Christian. And the gospel is just beginning to start to spread. And it's in, in what, you haven't seen nothing yet. The day of Pentecost, people always go, wow, 3,000 people were saved. Do you know there's been altar calls in Nigeria that over 40,000 people have come forward at one altar call in the last 15 or 20 years? They have had to use helicopters just to see how far the crowd goes because the crowd disappears over the curving of the earth. And the speakers have to be put on giant stands, so that they can so that they can get past the curvature. And when they pray for the people to receive Christ, it takes days. And this it's it's just be, it's just trickling now, but it's going to rain. And God is looking for a people that will study and memorize scripture, and get accustomed to moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to casting out demons, and to healing the sick, and to seeing these things happen. And he's looking for someone willing to do that. And although uh, Christianity is a declining situation in America, Christianity is exploding in Central America, South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, and so forth. And literally hundreds of thousands of people are going to come to Christ in the next two, two or three generations. And the only question is, is are you going to get in on it? And that's, a, that's just the facts, Jack. God, God is raising up an army, and uh, do you remember how when uh, David went against um, Goliath? <laughs> we, you know, we forget some important facts. First of all, it's not about like, you know, like in Sunday school you learn, you should be more like David. It's, it's about David was a, a foreshadowing of Christ, our true champion. And so you need to learn to read the scripture Christocentrically. But what are some of the things that David said? Remember, they tried to give him Saul's armor. And they wanted him to look all rich and fancy. And David said, I can't use this armor. Why? Because you know what? I won three city championships when I coached my little kids back in, in the 90s. And one of the first things I always said is, don't ever use a new glove or a new bat in a game that you haven't practiced with quite a few times. Don't, use, don't wear your new cleats until you've worn them to ten practices, and they don't look new anymore. What David is saying, I can't use Saul's armor because it doesn't fit me. I haven't used it before. I killed a lion, and I killed a bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will fall just like they did. But I don't need this fancy stuff. All I need is to go in the name of the Lord. And do it the way I killed the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine is, making, is mocking the name of God and the people of God. And he's going to get what's coming to him. Well, it's way late. I'll be shot. <laughs> Or you might throw a stone at me, you know, sink into my skull, but I don't have six fingers, and I'm not nine feet tall uh, <laughs> um, so those are just some word pictures of the church from the book of uh oh, I didn't do flock uh you know and i acts twenty uh when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he tells them to shepherd the flock of God and so forth and uh if you haven't ever like studied this this is something for uh uh john gray daniel williams all the all the guys that we've been asking to meet with us on mondays uh study like do a study on all the uh all the scriptures about shepherding the flock of God and look at all the things it tells you to remember to do you know nathan and uh, well, uh Josiah and stephen and Anvesh and so forth like uh you know. God's people, you know, Jesus, one of the main things that he always was uh, very emotional about was he saw the people and he saw that they were harassed. And, you know, I, I'm sorry, I get a little passion and I got a little stirred up today, uh, but, you know, when you... Go, when you go to a place like Kroger's, And you're shopping, and you just see all the people who are distraught, and they're harassed, and they're half out of their minds. We live at a time of great oppression. And uh, ask God to open your eyes spiritually, so you can see what people are really like on the inside when you see them. You, you know, there—it's not discernment of spirits is not just about discerning demonic spirits. But it's about being able to tell, like, when a person, if they have the Spirit of Christ in them, when you meet them. You, you know, God can actually show you a lot about a person just when you meet them. Like, you can know if they're born again, if they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, There's certain kinds of demons that you can kind of see about their constant, you know, cert, sometimes lust, sometimes addictions, sometimes angers and depressions. You can see uh, some of the spiritual powers that people are oppressed by and controlled by. And there's, a, there's a, even the occultists talk about, uh, I think, what do they call it? Like a meta, uh, I forget. There's like an aura that people have like a spiritual condition. You know, the, the Charlie Brown cartoons that have the, the, the character Pigpen. You know, you can see like the spiritual atmosphere around him, so to speak. And uh, you really can with people. That's not that crazy of a gift. It's a, it should be a normal thing where you can, uh, like, when you see someone, you can tell what their spiritual condition is. And, you know, Jesus knew a lot about the woman at the well that he was talking to. And he was, uh, he was not operating out of his omniscience as deity He was, Philippians 2 makes it clear, he laid that aside. He didn't stop being God, but he didn't operate out of his omniscience. He leaned on the Holy Spirit the same way we have to, or else he wouldn't be our model or our example. So, you know, when the Syrophoenician woman said to him, Lord, my daughter is cruelly demonized, the English translations mistranslate that. Her daughter was not demon-possessed, she was filled with demons which is very different. She wasn't owned by the devil. Uh, That whole demon possession mistranslation in the King James Bible has thrown off the thinking of almost all English-speaking Christians for 500 years now. Christians have demons, and and they need set free. That doesn't mean that they don't belong to God, and they're not citizens of His kingdom. Lots of born-again Christians... Are very bound up with demonic spirits. And they need set free. If you haven't actually gone through the five steps of entering Christ's kingdom, that includes the step four of being delivered from demons, you, you should do that at the beginning of your Christian life. You know, we recommend you read Derek Prince's book, They Shall Expel Demons, Frank and Ida Mae Salmon's book called. Uh, Pigs in the Parlor, and Francis McNutt's book called Deliverance from Evil Spirits. We also recommend that you read R.T. Kendall's book called Total Forgiveness Solution, because nothing will get you more bound up with demonic spirits than have unforgiveness in your heart. And I meet meet tons of Christians who have a great deal of unforgiveness in their heart and have never clearly thought through what true forgiveness is versus unforgiveness is, and they're holding all kinds of unforgiveness and bitterness inside themselves, and you can see it in the oppression that's about them. Frankly, we have people sitting in this audience that, that need to, re, to, to get some help with that. There's probably at least five people that I can see right now that are struggling with unforgiveness deeply in your spirits that's causing you spiritual oppression and spiritual bondage, and you need to work on that and get you need to take the steps to get set free from that. You know, talk to Leah Gray and, and talk to her about her testimony. When, when she got delivered from asthma, uh, it's because she got delivered from certain kinds of demonic spirits that asthma is always rooted in always there are certain kinds of of physical problems that always have spiritual roots always so you know don't don't sit in the audience and not get the help you need well i'm way past my time john gray come and tackle me or something (laughs)